there is this understood dynamic that if I am a practitioner within the business, that part of my job, someone in that department, their job is to like poke their head up and look around at solutions. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to get 10 annoying cold calls a day and I'm going to take whatever that person did, one a month, one a week, and I'm going to take a look at what you have. Nobody wants to do that anymore. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Elliott. He's currently Chief Revenue Officer at Biz Library. Chris has been involved in the landscape for the last 15 years, leading sales teams at Oversight, Navex, Achieve IT, and today with Biz Library. Chris, been looking forward to this. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Lee. I was looking forward to it. Likewise. And let's begin then, because We've chatted a little bit kind of on and off before coming into the conversation today. But for, for anyone that hasn't come across you in, in perhaps their own careers or come across Biz Library, can you tell them a little bit more around your story and how you got to where you are today? Sure. From a career perspective, I'm a career SaaS guy. I came up through the sales organization. Uh, I've been fortunate really to find myself now leading go-to-market functions, primarily with PE-backed uh, kind of scale-up size B2B businesses. So it's on the career front. I'm a father of five and trying to, trying to live uh, life to its fullest extent and uh, go create as many memories as I can. So trying to go crush on both fronts. I don't always succeed, but that's the goal anyway. How do you manage the life balance between those two? It's constant chaos. It's absolute. It's absolute. You just embrace it and you, uh, you learn to love it. <laughs> I respect that. I'm not at the point of fathering kids yet, but I might have to come and get some advice from you uh, when we get to that stage. I also loan them out. So if you want to do a <laughs> trial run, let me know. <laughs> I like it. It might have to be an international trial, but... <laughs> That's right. I think we can make it work. We can make it work. So all joking aside, Chris, I know that you operate now going from SaaS, going into the HR kind of e-learning space, if that's correct, with Biz Library. What would you say is the perhaps the biggest difference in the go-to-market process where you are now compared to where you've been previously? Sure. So at Biz Library, we're more focused kind of on our core ICP, ideal customer profile. Within mid-market, generally, I'd say about 100 to 5,000 employees is really our sweet spot. Most previously, it's about that eight years prior, I've really been focused on enterprise. And so from a go-to-market motion, you know, really transitioning from one-to-one and one-to-few sorts of motions where you're highly focused on Fortune 1000, Global 2000, kind of your classic blue chip companies to, you know, now there's there's 50,000 companies that we could call on. (laughs) And and only two to three percent of them are going to be in a buying motion. So... I'd say that was the single largest transition is moving from a very focused kind of bullseye targeting model to trying to effectively operate in a capital efficient way when your TAM is just so much larger in terms of the addressable market. Is there perhaps anything that you took from when you were being more targeted and being more specific into that? 
broader kind of focus that you then went into? Any kind of initiatives or tactics that you found were really helpful after you made the move? Yeah, some things do you know carry quite well. So whereas you know, if you are working a Fortune 1000 list, you may do company-specific level. You, know, you might spin up a whole microsite just for one prospect that you're looking to attract. It's a very close approach if you say, well, hey, I'm not going to do this company-specific, but I may go for an industry, which, which is something we've looked at is kind of responsive web design based on an industry of a particular prospect or any other way that you want, may want to look at that data. Perhaps it's geography, individual, if you have individual contact detail, you know, maybe the role that that individual plays within the organization. So there's, you can carry forth the concepts, which is all about driving relevancy. How do I make this very relevant to the person I'm trying to speak to? And if you have the resources and, and if the unit economics makes sense, you can go all the way to personalize it at an individual level as you drive kind of into larger markets. I think you can carry the concepts forward in a way that maintains relevancy, but balancing the cost to acquire with, you know, how relevant are we going to drive? Right. I want to bring us then to, so we're recording kind of end of January today. I know from looking at LinkedIn, the amount of sales kickoffs that are going on right now. I don't know whereabouts you guys are in terms of your financial year, but considering where we are today, what are you changing about your, or maybe evolving about your go-to-market this year compared to last year? So a lot of what we are looking at, and I call it evolutionary, not revolutionary. Yeah, I think we're certainly not trying to wholly change go-to-market motion just because the, the calendar year clicked over. For sure. But in the spirit of relevancy, uh, I think one thing that we're continually pushing towards, and I think there's a lot of broader market pressure right now, is meeting the buyer where they're at today in terms of their expectation in their experience with potential partners. And some of those main themes are they're, they're waiting even later in their process to connect with a seller. You know, depending on who you read, Gartner or otherwise would probably say they're 80% of the way through. So they're coming in the most informed that they have ever been. And increasingly, they just don't want to come in the door, right? Particularly you know, even in the mid-market now where historically, that's still not been self-service. You know, most mid-market SaaS providers, you can't just go convert on the webpage. I think there's a emerging, they're, they're not, it's not a majority trend by any point, but there's an emerging and growing cohort of digital natives that want the ability to self-service. And we are making incremental moves in that way. Just one example I, I would share with you, I think we're already pretty good. If you go to our website right now for a demo request, 99% of the time, we can get you connected, not just with an SDR, but an AE same day. Something that we're looking at right now is we want to see if we can have to make that instantaneous. So if you're on our demo request page, not only could you talk with an SDR right then, but if you have interest, like right now at this point in time, and you're, this was the 30 minutes you blocked, and if I don't get it today, I'm out. I want to be able to live transfer you to a qualified, knowledgeable product expert, which for us is our account executive. So that's an example of, hey, is, is it full-fledged Gen AI self-service? It's not, but we're making movements with the resources we have that we can reasonably stand up to try to say, hey, we want to support you. We know you don't want to go have an SDR call, have a 30-minute discovery, and then have an hour-long demo. You want to talk with somebody right now. Let's provide that to that buyer because that's what they deserve as part of their evaluation experience with us. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, 
we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. I love so much of what you kind of just mentioned, particularly, you know, even just the way that you talk about a buyer looking for a partner. It's not looking for a product per se. It's looking for a partner to be able to, I guess, ultimately solve that issue. And probably to look at this kind of more as a concept as a whole, as opposed to like a specific, kind of the specific example that you're talking about there. This kind of shift is something that I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will be very familiar with. And I think it's only probably accelerated in the last 12 months because of a lot of the places that a lot of businesses are in where it's, we can do a lot of that research ourselves before actually choosing to speak to a salesperson. I'm curious to understand, like, how do you measure the success of that? How do you measure like this change from uh, previously where perhaps they did have to talk to an SDR before going straight to an A perhaps to qualify them? Because there are I guess listening to it, the, the immediate things that spring up to me, which is probably coming from a more traditional approach, which is, well, you know, is this going to be a waste of my AE's time? Is this going to be the right prospect? How do we, on the back end, make sure that we are only putting through kind of qualified prospects to speak to our AEs? Yeah, definitely. So, the, hey, look, the one metric that ultimately matters is getting down to revenue produced and cost acquired. This question, you know, what did it cost me to acquire that much revenue? That is the last data point that you're ever going to get. Right? Yeah. So some of the earlier things that, that we're interested in, in looking at are kind of those stage-by-stage stage conversion metrics. So lead to your point, are we seeing any degradation in quality from squall to sow? And fundamentally, are we just pushing more through, pushing more stuff that wasn't quite ready that we should really have held that back? Time to close. You know, one of a, a hypothesis in this is that we can just cut our cycle time down by obviously the literal shortening from just the delay of a call. But what we also hope we capture that we may be missing out on today is some of those folks who don't convert because there's always a little leakage. Even when we book a meeting, if it's same day or a week out, some of those people just don't show up and we never track them down. And were those buyers who perhaps were quite qualified, it just, you missed your window of opportunity. So you know, maybe those are some of our faster sales cycle. That's a hypothesis. We're just getting into this. But when I think about the earlier indicators, uh, speed, and then kind of those interest stage conversion metrics are what we're looking at initially until we get kind of a couple full cycle table turns to really take a look at the metrics more holistically. Something that I'm intrigued to ask, because we did, we kind of touched on this when we were connecting kind of pre-show, Really, whose responsibility is it to really partner with the buyer? Is that the responsibility of the AE or is that perhaps the responsibility of someone else within the organization? It has a fascinating question. If I can ask you a qualifying question, are, are we talking exclusively pre-sale? Is it, Are we excluding current clients in this conversation so far? Also, good question. Yes, excluding current clients. Okay. So... <laughs> traditionally, I think there's been marketing on top of funnel and then and it's changed, right? And it keeps getting lower and lower and lower. But at some point in there, we say that's when the handoff happens, right? And that's when sales owns that relationship. I think that line is getting lower and blurrier 
increasingly that asynchronous digital communication, which doesn't have to be an AE, you know, at the end of the day, I just don't buy that most organizations are making purchasing decisions because of an AE. They're valuing that organization as a partner to them. And I think we should view our conversations with prospective clients in that way that organizationally, we're going to have a conversation with you that's going to include not only an account executive, but others. And so yeah, I think there's shared ownership in this. You, if everybody owns it, nobody owns it. I think you could say at some point, the AE will quarterback, kind of project manage the flow of communications. But I think the concept, yeah, I remember distinctly, is maybe 10 years ago or so, an organization, once somebody opened Pipeline, all marketing and communication shut down. It was like, no, we have to control every single email that goes out to this prospect, you know, forbid that they get a generic marketing email once I was in my precious sales cycle. I think those days are long gone. I want to be touching them on any channel I can. So whether it's email, live connects, their LinkedIn feed, their personal feeds. And I want them hearing from our CEO, our CMO, our director of delivery, our director of client success. I think getting exposure to those folks, whether it's live, which is probably a little more unrealistic for most buyers, having the either time or interest in having those conversations. I think most of it's going to be asynchronous conversation and, and pushing as many of those touches as I can in front of them to give them an enhanced experience with our brand. And I suppose that's arguably coming from kind of your background as well, right? Uh, in terms of going after like more specific kind of target accounts where the aim is to have as many touch points and influence over that account as possible, right? And I think I really like the idea that kind of everyone was in the organization as a product expert. We kind of only really touched on SDRs there who typically are in more junior positions. And I find it personally like quite a challenge when their role is literally just book the meeting and then move on to the next one. I'm like, well, if I put myself in the buyer's shoes and I'd been, you know, perhaps I've been cold called or I've been had this outreach and I've got this individual who doesn't really know that much about the product. They're just repeating the script over and over again. It's to me, it's like a human. It's it's odd. I, I don't see the sense in it. Would you agree? wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, I think there was probably by virtue the fact that there wasn't a better alternative. I think for the longest time, there was this understood dynamic that if I am a practitioner within the business, that part of my job, someone in that department, their job is to like poke their head up and look around at solutions. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to get 10 annoying cold calls a day and I'm going to take whatever that person did, one a month, one a week, and I'm going to take a look at what you have. Nobody wants to do that anymore. Like if I don't already have an awareness of your products and have some hypothesis as to how that's going to add value, chances are they don't have a phone anyway. But if they, even if you do and you connect, like if I don't have a familiarity with your brand, I don't care. You can make it the most personalized pitch on the planet. You could tell me my social security number and I might call the FBI, but I'm not booking a meeting with you. I want to know that there's some value to add there that I already have before I just get a, a straight up cold call into my phone. And so what would be your expectation then? So if you were like in market for a solution or you were looking around, what would be your expectation, kind of the experience that you receive from a brand? You kind of, and it'd be good to maybe dig into like specific examples of, you know, perhaps from the marketing side, but also from that selling side as well. Yeah. So on the marketing side, I think the, this is my personal experience, the, the applications that I'm seeing 
that I find myself gravitating towards are typically driven by influencers. It is what they are. They're working, so they have full-time jobs, but they are highly relevant in particularly the, the, the LinkedIn platform is probably the most prevalent right now in a work setting. And I've got folks I follow regularly to see what they're espousing in their day-to-day lives and then also what products are they talking about. And sometimes those are individuals not associated with that organization. Sometimes it's the CEO of the company. I think that's another change that you've seen is to your point about everybody is a product expert is you see COOs frequently now producing video content, CEOs, I'll say CFOs producing content about the products that their companies are putting out there. And it carries a lot of weight. I mean, far more than a cold email that tells me where I went to college. You know, again, I think that's just not the right type of relevancy in 2024. I want to know that that you really understand the industry and that you understand how your product creates value. And for that matter, you can let me see it before I want to go to your website and download your white papers and ultimately maybe put in a contact us form. Yeah. And really, that's the embodiment of the kind of customer journey that we all envisaged kind of 10 years ago, where marketing is an influence across all of it. Mm-hmm. And often the challenge, so who is responsible for that? And it's that expectation of, well, it always comes from marketing. But actually, it goes above and beyond that, right? Particularly with, like, as you talk about social selling, it comes into kind of thought leadership as well from the C-suite. And it's having that influence being pushed out from all angles, because it's a rather than a you know, very much a sales-led approach. It's rather going at it almost like more marketing-led. Yes. You know, another trend I think you're seeing is just greater transparency, which again, I think these are all trends that are good for buyers. I think this is driving a better equilibrium in the relationship. I think you get a lot of disparity in what information is shared when you're so dependent on each individual AE, right? Do they have the right training? Do they have the right intent and so forth and so forth? I think the more you can consolidate that, not only, again, is it way more capital efficient, but I also think it just creates a more uniform experience for those who are out there looking at potential partnerships with you. Yeah, absolutely. Along a similar vein to what we've been talking about, which is like, I guess, if I were to summarize it, we're talking about how to be a more effective seller or actually a more effective partner Mm -hmm. to a buyer. Within your organization, what would you say separates the top performers from the average performers? And I'm talking specifically from a sales perspective here. Down, I have a quick answer to you. Our top performers, hands down, can supplement what the organization produces through marketing sourced leads. And they can layer in 20 to 30% of their annual booked revenue through self-source. And that those percentages are going to vary depending on the organization. But at ours, kind of the handshake I have or the NAFCA math with our chief marketing officer is, you know, 70 to 80% of what we book in a year is going to come directly from some marketing channel. And then I have a very open dialogue with our AEs too on, hey, you, we did not create plans for you to get to 100% off of marketing source. You know, we're very open about that, that if you want to go get the attainment bonuses, get into the, the best accelerators we have, Unless you're going to convert at just extreme rates, which is a strategy, but what we would posit as the more attainable strategy is layer in great conversion with marketing source with self-sourcing. And we have some specific ways that we direct them to do that in terms of the, uh, the accounts that they're calling into. But I think 
that would probably be the number one thing that I see separating is that the supplementation of marketing source with deals that they're originating on their own. That is not a surprise for me, certainly in the analysis that, that we've done and actually that we've got coming out in a few weeks. The, the kind of gap between reps who self-source is often about 218% higher than those who do not. And so it's a really common trait actually amongst top performers. And so I'm curious then, what would you say is, you know, for any perhaps like managers who are listening, what is an effective way to self-source? Because um, obviously it comes from the perspective of being proactive and constantly be I guess, prospecting. Yeah. But what would be your advice and really how do you effectively self-source? Yeah. So this is something I feel like I've I've skinned my knees on so many times and nor do I claim to have it perfect by any stretch right now. But here's a a guiding principle that I think I always use as a litmus test when we're making decisions about who's calling into what. The fundamental question is this, if I'm going to be doing prospecting, you know, why would I use an AE? that's way more expensive as a resource than an SDR that's more capital efficient. The, the determining factor that to me is always very relevant is does a relationship with our brand or a competitive brand exist? If it does, generally what that means is the client is already educated on the problem. There's not like a market awareness from a problem to be solved and how we solve it. Largely, it's down to time. It's, hey, I loved you when I saw you last time. I didn't have the internal buy-in. I didn't have budget. Or maybe you don't know my brand, but you're buying from our competitor. That budget is there. You're aware of the problem. I just need to make you aware of us as a brand. When those scenarios are true, I think an AE is an awesome resource to put on that. When you're starting, and I may not even have like problem awareness, that's an SDR effort. Really, it's probably a marketing effort, but in terms of who would ultimately be calling. So when I think about how we leverage our account executives, we have them really working our previous closed lost opportunities. You know, that they know us, they know the problem. Can I get them back into, because we see conversion rates go up. It's exponential each time we get them into a new cycle. Same thing with competitive accounts, right? They've already got budget. We just need to show them a better way and go convert them over to our uh, kind of vision of the world and way of doing it. So that's those are use cases where I think leveraging AEs makes a lot of sense. And all prospecting sucks. You know, just, <laughs> there's very few people out there who genuinely love it. And if you do, like hats off to you. But for most, for most people out there, it really sucks. And those are use cases that suck far less. Because again, you're not calling to somebody who has like no concept as to why you've been called. They have an awareness of this problem. They're interested in solving it. If you can now show them why you solve those better, how you do it more efficiently, take your pick, a lot of times you can get some traction at a far greater volume than just generically working broad intent data or something along those lines. I love that. I love that. I'm interested to know, Chris, what would you say is different about your approach to being a chief revenue officer compared to your peers? So other sales and revenue leaders? I'm a lot more fun. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your candor. (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, I get this from Bob Iger's masterclass. He's talking talking about Disney. Disney's culture was, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take our work very seriously. And I'd like to think that that is the ethos that I try to bring into organizations I'm with, which is like, we want to go create environments where we can all really thrive and do the best work of our lives. 
And generally, I think environments where that's true are environments where you do have healthy amounts of psychological safety balanced with your pressure to perform. And everyone feels that they can collaborate and talk openly and innovate in a way that, that won't be met with punitive response. By the same token, like when it comes to the actual work product that we're putting on the field, like, man, we want to be all over that. Yeah, I think that's a dynamic, getting that, those balances right of our interpersonal dynamics, you know, of not, not taking ourselves too seriously and creating safe environments to iterate and environments where it is okay that you failed. But we're going to learn from that failure and move on and balancing that with the pressure to perform and meet investor expectations. I think that's a leadership balance that can be hard to get right. I think the pendulum can tend to move into all or the other at the detriment of results or at the detriment of culture. And I think we try to do not just myself, but the, the entire leadership staff here of making sure that we find equilibrium in those two points. Well, I feel like it's a simple follow-up question. How do you do it? What's the secret sauce? How do you find that balance? Because I agree, it is a balance that swings from one end to the other. Um, but we'd love to hear from your experience how you go about doing that. Yeah, there's, there's no silver bullet, right? As I, I'm somewhat dispounding sure. all things, I think are all kind of variables in this equation. Well, I'll start with one. It's one of our core values at, at this library is freedom to fail. I think that's really important that Failure not always be met with a heavy hand. I've failed more times than I can count. Like, I can't think of a single success I've had that wasn't just rife with little failures, both small and existential along the way. And I think particularly in sales, historically, failure has been met most of the times with a pretty heavy hand. And so I think creating an allowance for that, that is grounded in learning from that experience and kind of a resiliency to move forward is really important. Hey, on the performance side of things, like clarity is compassion. And you know, how often is there conflict between sales leadership, sales manager, sales manager, and AE just over failure to establish basic expectations on, hey, we're going to meet every week or every other week, and we are going to look in three categories, activities, pipeline, and results. And Here's what I would expect to see in each of these categories. So that's just my baseline. It's an open book test. Those are things, you know, I'm kind of shouting out, not riffing here. These are real conversations that we have with every new hire. You know, like, hey, we've got our dashboard. It's going to go out to you. You're going to get it weekly. Comes in these three categories. These are metrics. And I think just sending those expectations makes it so much easier that when something's off track, I don't feel like I'm getting blindsided with a pop quiz. Like, hey, we've been talking about this since your interview process. This is just part of the natural course of events of expectations. And we're either tracking to them or not. If we're not, let's just have an open dialogue about maybe the factors that led to them, what we're going to do differently moving forward. I broke right out into role play with you, Lee, which is it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Consistency. Yeah. Penultimate question, because you mentioned such a point that I love. And I'm, I similarly embrace the ethos of embracing failure, embracing making mistakes, being fearless and accepting in our mistakes, but also always learning from it. So what is the, I've wrote this down and then does that make sense? What is the best failure that you've learned from? So perhaps the most significant failure, perhaps in your career that has taught you the most significant lesson? Yeah, that's a great question. It sounds like there's a lot, so I know you've got to <laughs> dig in there. <laughs> I've got a lot. I've got a large catalog. <laughs> that I could go through there. I'd have to think further. This is like literally the, the large, I know that's the largest, but it's the largest that's certainly most recent. Run with it. And I've really had a failure in an area that I cover 
to launch. And we've been at it for a year now. And it's been a myriad of factors, uh, many of them self-imposed, some of them external. The If I had the stack rank, just like, what was the one thing that I had total control over that would have had the biggest impact in this situation fully differently? Um, really got to the leader over it. And do I have the right leader in place to manage the project? Because without the right leader, which cycled a couple times, I know I had individual contributors who really could have thrived. I know they could have thrived in the role. They needed guidance that they didn't have. And in without, I think a, a manager can make or break a team. And probably it sounds so obvious to the audience, but we really languished for quite some time in getting this team to get to like critical mass, get the exit velocity. It was a new, relatively new initiative for us. And we cycled through managers a couple of times. And I think that's before you go embark on that initiative is, do I have the right management infrastructure in place? Do I have, you brought this up earlier. They have the right metrics, particularly the leading indicators that I have clarity on, you know, kind of going to drink some of my own champagne here. Like, did I have clarity on, here's the leading indicators that we're going to look at weekly or monthly. I think those things were absent in this scenario, which really have caused us some setbacks. That's one that's kind of like, just if you can't tell, I'm losing sleep over this one daily right now. They kind of committed to getting the ship fixed. But that, that would be one that I think not new lessons at all, but just easy as you get into the grind. That's one piece of a lot of other things that we all manage. And it's easy to just keep ticking the can and not really address some of the root causes. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Brilliant. When I asked the question, I was like, you know what? It's such an interesting one. If it was thrown back to me, I probably would have said actually something very similar. If that makes you feel any better, it can be so making the wrong hire can be even more damaging than making no hire at all. Yeah. And actually finding the right hire can have such an remarkable impact compared to having no one whatsoever. But making the wrong one can derail it in so many more ways that you only really find out when you actually go and make that wrong hire, right? Yeah. I can empathize on that one. If, Lee, if I could double clean that just a little bit. Sure. Something I've put out a, a post on this topic specifically. I'm like, what are some of the elements of a great sales manager? And one of the things I've observed just over time from different sales managers that we've had here, the ones that just thrive and others that, that struggle to get traction, most all of them can run a sales cycle that generally that's how they got promoted was you know, some proficiency in managing sales cycles. Generally, they can manage to metrics. Most people who get promoted to management position understand the basic concepts of managing activities, managing pipeline, close rates, those sorts of things. What I see as being a, a major variable it, that's not necessarily correlated to individual contributor success is can I diagnose, kind of troubleshoot my AEs that I manage into where they're falling down and effectively coach them? 
And I think a lot of the times what I see is we're running the sales cycle myself or I'm creating a lot of conflict with an employee about like, here's where you're failing without providing any real value as to how to help them acquire those skills or better those skills. It's just a recipe for constant dissatisfaction. The manager's constantly pissed off. The AE's not producing the results. Most AE's want to succeed. And if I'm not succeeding in an area that I need to, but you can't, other than tell me I'm missing, can't help me really diagnose and work on skills to get better. I think that's when you get into those like really bad situations where that manager may be good enough to string that team along for some period of time through just heroics, but it's not a scalable dynamic in that they can't really nurture and cultivate talent like they need to. It's such an interesting point. And is it fair to say that comes down to be able to give the right feedback? And so when obviously you talk about it as coaching, but it's being able to see, okay, yes, this is where we've got a problem, perhaps in our sales process with this individual rep, but then being able to identify why that is the case and also able to present it in a way that isn't just, you're bad at this. It is, I've listened to your calls. I've watched back, you know, I've looked through your emails, so on and so forth. And actually what I can see is you do this quite well at the minute, but there's a real opportunity to improve here. And I've been able to pick it out from various different examples. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And if and I'll just go, I'll throw it out one more time because I have such a believer in this. And I think I do think it's something that I have seen collectively the industry move further away from over time is I cannot be a bigger proponent in role play. I don't even announce it. Like if you're one of my direct reports, I just go into role play and we start riffing because I think saying what needs to happen is one thing. And if you're already good at that skill, like I know what that should look like. But yeah, if you're a manager whose AE is not demonstrating proficiency in whatever that action you need is, a lot of times just raising awareness to it, that's not coaching. You know, that's, I've informed you, you have a deficiency, but did you coach at all? And I think, let's actually walk through that right now. Hey, here's what that may sound like or what that should look like. Hey, why don't you rewrite that email, send it to me, let's have an email about whatever the use case may be. But I think so much, it's not just providing the information, they really need some help. And it's so much easier when you don't do it in the game, you do it in practice. You can always have a practice right there on the spot. And a lot of times that's the kind of the secret in upskilling that person over time. I love that. Chris, final question. Okay. And for anyone watching on YouTube or on LinkedIn, I know you're well prepped for this. <laughs> What is one book that you would recommend to other revenue leaders? If I had one, I do have one, one favorite. <laughs> they are like kids, right? So you're not supposed to have a favorite, but I do have one. I'd say it's probably the most influential on my career to date as it specifically rates to like the, being a, a sales practitioner is Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play by Mahan Khalsa. That's, I think some of the dynamics in that book are rapidly evolving with exactly what we were talking about before, kind of this desire for self-service in the buying experience. But I think it is still very relevant today and gets into a lot of topics on the ways that we really should be engaging with those who are looking to acquire our services. The entire book is about getting rid of the fluff that we often inject into our sales cycles that, that we, you know, we, can, we erroneously think are going to lead to better outcomes that, that really don't and getting really candid about the problems that they're trying to solve and the way that we solve them and finding if, you know, if there's alignment there or not. And then can, can I get a bonus outside of 
Can I throw one more out there? Go on then. I'll allow it. All right. Last <laughs> one. Last one. I'm going to throw out Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Oh. Phenomenal. It's totally outside the practitioner realm. Love it. But there's some deep thoughts in there and it's worth your time. Why? I have to ask. We can't leave it there. Ah. What are the deep thoughts? <laughs> well, first of all, you guys, this is one I would recommend on Audible because you get to hear uh, McConaughey and his voice narrated, which is, that's, yeah, half the fun. Yeah. <laughs> He has got some really interesting life perspectives. Did not grow up accomplished. Yeah, I think kind of a self-made sort of story. One of the quotes that, that I can recall off the top of my head that I loved was persist, pivot, or concede. It's up to us every time. And, and I'll, I'll throw that nugget out there that there's just some of those gems that I feel like are really good kind of life mantras in or out of sales. That question always throws up surprises. And that is the first, it may be the last time that I get recommended uh, Matthew McConaughey, but I love it. <laughs> I actually, you know, I'm really interested. I'll, um, if anyone else is in the same boat as me, we'll, we'll put that down in the show notes. There you go. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Very last thing, for any folks that have been listening, perhaps they want to reach out, got any questions, probe your knowledge of Matthew McConaughey. Where can they find you? I'm far more up to speed on Elton. So if you follow <laughs> me at all, you know, I post at least a couple times a month about Elton. But if you want to connect with me about Elton or McConaughey, LinkedIn, hands down, is the best place you can touch with me. I'm there daily, pretty much. And whether it's go-to-market philosophy, whether it's what we're doing here at Biz Library, or you want to hear more about Rocket Man, hit me up. I'd love to connect with you. Fantastic. I'll put links to all those down below. Chris, thank you so much again. And everyone that's listened this week, we'll catch you next week. Likewise, thanks so much, Lee. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.